Indeed, thank you for your singing. That was an excellent uh, hymn to open our time together tonight with our focus being financial maturity, singing that third verse, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always. Now to turn our attention to that topic of financial maturity. Over this past month in Sunday evening services, we've been seeking to identify and cultivate maturity and that begins first and foremost with the, the focus on spiritual maturity. That is indeed the goal of the scriptures. That is, that is our goal as a ministry to, as you saw underneath the, or over the top of the double doors as you come in, to present everyone complete or mature in Christ. That is our, our goal. And I've been encouraged as we've gone through this series to hear from so many of you. Uh, that this has been a, a great help in identifying areas of weakness in your own heart or in your parenting. And I, I'm thankful that uh, Pastor Mark encouraged me to um, jump into this topic as I'd asked him what would be most profitable for these Sunday evenings. And uh, after that first week on spiritual maturity, we turned our attention to uh, that of physical and intellectual maturity. And there the focus was what we see in Christ of growing in wisdom and stature before men and God. And the emphasis there I want to bring up, because it will be important with what we're looking at this evening, the emphasis in, in physical and intellectual maturity was that of stewardship. The Lord has given you a physical body. He has given you a mind, a mental capacity. And the emphasis in that message was to steward it well for the glory of God. Keep that theme in mind. We'll revisit it in just a moment. And then last week, we looked together at the topics of social and emotional maturity. And social maturity, identifying heart issues or enemies of social maturity that would keep us from interacting with one another relationally. Uh, enemies such as self-love and fear of man. And in consideration of our emotional maturity, we looked at the, the fact that we must live by faith and not by our feelings. We must be sensible and think biblically before acting. That was our focus last week. So this week we turn to a subject that the scripture is full of references to. There are somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 references to money in the scripture. Around 50% of Jesus' parables speak of stewardship and money. Nearly 300 verses in the gospels deal with money. It is a serious subject for us to consider. And I want to begin by confronting a misconception that is so common. There's a verse that is often misquoted on the topic of money. Here is the misquotation of 1 Timothy 6.10. Money is the root of all evil. What's the problem there? The problem is that that is not what the verse says. Some of those words are certainly present in the verse, but what does Paul charge Timothy with there? He says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Money itself is not condemned in this verse, nor would you find another verse that just condemns money outright or earthly material possessions. Having great material wealth is not forbidden in the Scripture. Money itself is not evil. But there is a certain response that I would say is common in the heart of man, I would say is natural to the heart of man, a response towards money that leads to what's identified here as 
every expression of evil. Like all the sorts of evil are wrapped up in this heart attitude. That would be the love of money. This is why money is such an important topic for us to consider, not because we have so much of it. Whether you have a little or a lot, these principles are going to uh, ultimately call us to manage or steward our money in the same way. We must examine this topic because our hearts are exposed by how we manage our money. A pastor named Costi Hinn says, Money tests our hearts like little else on earth. Whether it be the test of poverty or the test of prosperity, money brings out the best and worst in us. Money is, in this sense, a revealer of our hearts. And thankfully, the Lord has given us piercing clarity through the scriptures as to how we are to view our money and how we are to use it. So I want to give you an outline to work through this topic as we consider it tonight. The outline I have for you is the heart and habits of financial maturity. The heart and habits of financial maturity. My alternate outline was the convictions and commitments of financial maturity, but I went with heart and habits. But the point is, is how do we view our money and how do we use our money? Those who are financially mature, what is it that they believe and then therefore how do they live in light of that? What is their heart and what are their habits? Let's start with that that topic of the heart of financial maturity. What is at the heart of someone who is a faithful steward of what the Lord gives them? And that is the idea of stewardship. The heart of financial maturity is wrapped up in the theme of stewardship. Let's talk about this topic for a moment. Look at Psalm 24, verse 1. Psalm 24, verse 1. David says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. And it goes on to speak of the fact that it is he who founded it. The earth and everything that is created belongs to him. That truth is also seen in Job 41.11. You don't have to turn there, but you're familiar with the context of Job 41. God speaking to Job from the whirlwind. Essentially, God addressing the heart of Job that's questioning all that God does. And here, God says to Job, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. Just these two verses, and we could truly spend the whole night just drawing out this one principle. But you understand it already. Everything is His, including us, and including everything that we would currently call ours. I can, I can demonstrate this is my possession. I have the title in my name. I have the deed with my name on it. Uh, I have a verifiable proof that this is mine. Well, it's on God's earth. And you are God's creation. It is God's. That is the point. It is ultimately all his. And this is the basis of our understanding of stewardship. He owns it all. I believe for us to be financially faithful stewards, if we are to be financially mature, we must have this as a core conviction of our heart. This is indeed the heart of financial maturity. God owns it all. Therefore, I am a steward. Since he is the owner, we are stewards of whatever it is that he entrusts to us. 
The concept of stewardship is that of managing someone else's property. In the scripture, the familiar theme is that of a wealthy landowner, someone who has many flocks, many vineyards, uh, many crops, and they entrust a steward or a manager to manage, to carry out the affairs of that business, to, uh, to, to employ people to work the fields and to take that harvest and to sell it or to store it or to turn a profit that would be given to that owner. That manager, that steward, is managing the owner's property so that it yields benefit to the owner. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is one of Christ's many parables about the steward. And here, in the context, uh, the Lord is rebuking the love of money in the Pharisees. And just to set the context, we'll look past our parable down to verse 14. So look at Luke 16, verse 14, just to show you, this is coming right after the verses we will look at. It says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. Just pause there. That is indeed the point of this parable. Christ is exposing the hearts of men by how they manage what God has entrusted to them. And he does so by uh, carrying out this principle of stewardship in this parable. So we'll uh, look together. I just want to look from verse 1 to verse 13. And we'll not spend a lot of time here, but I do want to see the principles of stewardship. And Pastor Jerry Rag, in teaching this passage, called it the parable of the savvy steward. He is, he is very wise, very cunning, very savvy here. This parable teaches us that we are to maximize our eternal influence through earthly resources. This text warns us of being consumed with temporary riches and not esteeming what matters most to God. This would be fixing our heart on earthly possessions. And he gives this parable of this savvy steward to say, why are you not managing earthly resources for spiritual benefit? Let's look at it together. Verse 1, Luke 16, now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So someone comes and reports to the owner uh, that this uh, steward, this manager, uh, was misusing the owner's funds, misusing the owner's property. He is being unrighteous and dishonest. This comes to the rich man, the one who owns all of this, uh, that this manager was doing a poor job, squandering his things away. In verse 2, and he, called, and he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So notice there, he just got fired. For you can no longer be manager. You have lost your job. Now go get the book so we can give an accounting of your management. This manager confronts him and forces him to give an account for how he has stewarded the owner's resources. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Here he assesses his current limitations, his 
physical limitations, the personal shame that would come upon him if he turned to a life of begging. It would cut him off from all the people he knows. It would indeed be a massive status change from being a a, a steward or a manager of this wealthy man's possessions. That was a, a very good paying job. We'll see that again in a moment. And here he is concerned that all of his livelihood, that all of his his cherished possessions are going to be taken away from him. Verse 4 is his plan. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So here's the plan. Here is how I can make some sacrifices today to get rewards tomorrow. Let's see what he does in verse 5. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. So he goes through the entirety of the financials, everyone that owes money to his master. And for you to understand, the way that this manager would have received funds is by those that owed his master, uh, whatever it would be, crops or oil or whatever, they would give additional on top of what they owe the master to pay that manager. That's how he would have received his pay. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began to say to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Verse 7. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Now it is likely here that he is not cutting his master's profits. Uh, you'll notice that in the very next thing, in verse 8, he is praised. Uh, he is not praised here for cutting into the master's profits. He is rather cutting his commission that he would have received for working for his master. He is cutting his own pay that day to ultimately benefit himself down the road, is the idea. He is making sacrifices today for tomorrow's rewards, is the principle. Verse 8, this is why his master praises him. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. What does that statement mean? He is saying, for temporary gain, they make sacrifices today to make sure that they take care of themselves and their loved ones and their own interests Uh, Even through unrighteous means, they are shrewd, they are crafty to try to take care of their earthly lives, is the idea. Jesus' point here is that people who love earthly riches are shrewd and crafty to get earthly possessions, earthly wealth. So here, the, the point for us is that we would use today's resources, today's talents, today's money, and manage them in such a way that eternity is benefited. Notice in verse 9 how he draws out these principles. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is his point here? Use, notice here, by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. This is just speaking of earthly resources. Uh, by, by the means of earthly wealth, use it in such a way to make friends for yourself that they'll receive you into eternal dwellings. Here, the, the language is a little difficult. What is he saying is we are to use our financial stewardship here and now with the Lord entrust to us to invest in eternal benefit. 
Isn't that an incredible concept? He, he goes on to draw this out more in verse 10 and 11. He who is faithful in, very, in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? You hear that? If you can't uh, steward earthly resources well for the glory of God with eternity in mind, He's saying here, why would someone entrust to you something infinitely more valuable? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places for those who are in Christ. If you're untrustworthy with earthly wealth, who would entrust to you the riches of eternal life? If someone does not use the resources they receive in this life as in investing them towards eternal blessings, why would we think that they are living for a heavenly homeland? Ultimately, what he's pointing at here is how we use our money here in this life is evidence of what we believe about the next life, is evidence of what we believe about eternity. He says in verse 12, And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Here, again, I don't want to do a full exposition of this passage. I've skimmed over uh, much difficult verses here. But the, the point that I want you to see is the emphasis on stewarding our earthly resources for ultimately spiritual and eternal benefit. This is indeed the biblical concept of stewardship. God owns it all. And you and I are to give an account of how we manage what he has entrusted to us. And the second principle in the heart of the financially mature is that of contentment. So stewardship and contentment. And we're going to draw out this idea of contentment. Look with me, if you will, at Hebrews 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, 5, the author of Hebrews is concluding the epistle and he is charging the church to let love go on and on let love govern the life of the church and he uses some terms here some compound terms about love such as in verse 2 the term hospitality that is a love of strangers and then he he combines another two words for love here in verse 5 And that is the term for money and the term for love. Love of money. Notice what he says about love of money in verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Notice here, the author says, make sure your character is free from the love of money. He is pointing to character, the heart attitude towards the money. The character is the type of life you live. It is your pattern of life. Your habits form your character. How do you know if someone loves money? It is not by looking at their bank account. Understand, the love of money is not identified by whether someone has a lot of money or not. 
You could have a poor person who is in love with money or a billionaire who is not. It is pointing to their character, their habits of life. How would you know the difference? You would look at their pattern. You'd look at how they live. You would see what heart attitude is depicted towards the money they have and what are they doing with the money that has been entrusted to them. How would we examine whether or not we are in love with money, whether or not our character is free from the love of money? We should examine what what stock we are putting in our money. Is your money the source of security in your life? Are you putting your hope in earthly possessions? Could you say, as we sang a bit earlier, riches I heed not? Meaning, I am not seeking to obey earthly riches as though my, my convictions would come at a price. We should ask ourselves, is, is my integrity willing to be compromised if it profits me something? We just came out of tax season and that is an easy time where no one's looking over your shoulder and you could say, well, my integrity, I could compromise here to get back extra money. That would be an evidence of a love of money. The author of Hebrews says, be sure your character is free from a love of money. What is your behavior when it comes to finances? Is it righteous? Do you demonstrate that you believe God by how you steward the money that you have? The author tells us how to be sure that your character is free from the love of money. And it is summed up in this term, being content. I would add in by being content. He's telling you how to be sure your, your character is free from the love of money by being content with what you have. Contentment is the means of staying away from the love of money. So we need to understand contentment. Contentment here denotes something being sufficient, adequate, or enough. It is to be satisfied with what you have. Let's clarify. Contentment does not mean that you would not keep working. If you already have some money, would contentment mean, well, I'm not going to earn any more because I have to be satisfied with what I have? Certainly not. Contentment does not mean that you are no longer striving to uh, invest your money wisely. It doesn't mean you're not taking a promotion because you, uh, you, you say you already have enough, so you won't possibly ever get any more. It is not a rejection of ever having more. It is rather a rejection of covetousness. Contentment is the rejection of the heart that cannot be satisfied until it has more. The content heart is not the one that says, I just can't have any more resources because it would be inequitable for me to have more money than someone else. So I'm content. I can't have any more. That's not the idea of contentment. The idea of contentment is a heart towards money that responds to the Lord's abundant uh, provision, whatever he has given you with gratitude. And then you put no faith in that money. You put no confidence in it. You do not find your joy, your satisfaction in that money. Your contentment and satisfaction is in God. A place I love to see this is in 1 Timothy 6. If you will, turn to your left a little bit to 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Here Paul is really unfolding what he means to Timothy by 
godliness with contentment is a means of great gain. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, down in verse 17. Verse 17 are the instructions to those who are rich. So Paul is already in this passage, already rebuked these false teachers that were ultimately peddling the word of God for their own financial gain. He rebuked that love of money in the verse we mentioned earlier in uh, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. He told, the, he told Timothy what to pursue in verse 11 to 16. And now he brings up the rich yet again in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. And then you would think if money was the problem at this point, he would say, give away all your money. It would be like the rich young ruler. All of you need to go and give all your possessions to the poor, then come and follow me. He doesn't tell them that. But notice, I do think he unpacks the heart of contentment in what he says. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. What's the idea of conceit here? It is high thinking. The rich are tempted to think that they are greater than others by means of their greater bank accounts, by means of their wealth. So he says, instruct them not to be conceited or, this is very important, to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So don't think your money makes you something and do not think that your money gives you a position of security. Do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Here, hope is, is a confident certainty in that which is not seen. So money itself gives a false hope. Money presents the heart with a lie that because you have this, now you're someone and now you have something. Now all of your your dreams can come true because you have this money. You're protected. You're safe. You're powerful. You have this. And Paul is saying, no, tell them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Uh, Do not for a moment let them think that they can trust in that money. Proverbs 11:28 He who trusts in his riches will fall but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. He goes on he tells them first do not uh, put your hope on these uncertainty of riches but on God. This is the contented heart. It doesn't mean I I I can't have much money. I have to give away all that I have. It's that I'm not putting any trust in whatever financial means I get. Whether I have a dollar to my name or a million dollars to my name, my hope is not in that money. The Lord could take it away. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the content heart of Job seen in Job 1. He goes on to describe God in the end of verse 17. God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Isn't that interesting? In the context of earthly riches, it is pointing back to that first principle we started with. God owns it all, and now God has given it, and he hasn't given it to you. If God gave you any financial money, it doesn't mean he expects you now to give it all to someone else, as though no one can ever experience any personal enjoyment of their money. Here he does express, he has richly supplied us with all things to enjoy, You can't ignore in the context, he's talking about money here. He has given us uh, riches to enjoy in an earthly sense, but to put no trust in them. He goes on, verse 18, instruct them to do good, 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. This is the heart of contentment. It is a heart that is satisfied in the abundant provision of the Lord, a heart that says, I'm not trusting in this money. I certainly, the Lord has given me the ability to enjoy it, uh, but ultimately this money is just something God has entrusted to me to be a faithful steward. These are the heart of financial maturity, the heart of stewardship, and the heart of contentment. I want to turn our last few minutes together and consider the habits of financial maturity. What is this heart that is acknowledging the responsibility of stewardship before the Lord and, and, and responding to what the Lord gives with contentment? How does that heart now carry out these habits of financial maturity? The first habit of the financially mature that I want us to look at is that of generosity. We saw it here in 1 Timothy 6 in verse 18. To be generous and ready to share. Generosity expresses the heart of both stewardship and contentment. It acknowledges the Lord has given this to me and now I can in turn bless someone else. I just want to take a, a few moments to kind of address the topic of giving in the church. It is, uh, I grew up with the understanding that everyone was to tithe, and that was what I was taught, tithing and 10%. And if you want to see the language of tithing, you need to go to the Old Testament, um, because it is not a principle that is taught in the New Testament. Uh, there are many, many passages you can look at in the Old Testament uh, certainly Deuteronomy 14, 22, and 23, you could see the command to Israel to tithe. This just means a tenth. And ultimately, Israel was commanded multiple tithes. So two 10% tithes, and then one tithe that was every third year. So somewhere in the realm of about 23% uh, of Israel's um, resources were to be tithed or given. And on top of this, they were able to offer free will offerings on top of their 23%. That would have just been expressions of worship before the Lord. This practice of tithing um, is not a practice that is called for in the New Testament. Now, the language of tithing, if, if believers in the church want to use that, there's no problem with it. The only thing I'm saying in, in this uh, brief soapbox is that we are not commanded, everyone in the church must give 10%. Now, if that's uh, the, uh, as we talk about the principles of how we give in the New Testament, if that's the conclusion you come to, 10% is a good number, you're, you're certainly welcome to do it. It's just not the New Testament command. That's what I want to be clear of. So how should we look at giving in, in the church? Look for a moment at 1 Corinthians 16. Let's look at a, a couple of verses here uh, just to draw out what I want to give you is six quick principles of giving. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 to 3. Paul is giving instructions for this collection. And he says, now concerning the collection for the saints or suffering believers, and he is calling on all of the churches. This is a, a command he has given to all of them, not to one church, but for all of them to contribute to the work of the ministry in, in the area and in other churches. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. It's just to say it is 
universal in the church that uh, the Lord expects those who he generously gives to to give as well. It says, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save. Let's stop there. The first principle of giving in the church is it should be regular. It should be consistent. He says, on the first day of every week. This is the day that they would gather in corporate worship, just as we do on, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. And every time they gathered for Lord's Day worship, they took this collection. He says, giving should be regular. Secondly, giving should be individual. Notice he addresses each one of you. It is every believer's responsibility before the Lord in giving. This is to say it's, it's not like the church's responsibility is removed if you have one really uh, healthy financial giver in the church and they give so no one else has to. No, he's saying it's individual. Let each one of you do this. Thirdly, he says it should be planned. That's in this command. He says each one of you put aside and save. Put aside is the idea of deliberate action. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul's also teaching on giving, and he says, as he has purposed in his heart. It's the idea of giving should be planned out. You should consider what you have and therefore what you are able to give in, in worship to the Lord. And number four, it should be proportional. The next phrase there, he says, as he may prosper. Giving is proportional. This is to say uh, the Lord doesn't command that everyone give one direct amount, but rather uh, that it is according to how the Lord has caused you to prosper. There is the passage in Mark twelve thirty-eight to 44 of the, the widow giving her last two mites. We talked about this in a staff meeting recently, but this was not this parable or not parable, this uh, this. Uh, time of, of Jesus looking in on the temple and seeing this widow give her last two of their smallest denomination, these last two pennies, so to say, was not taught as this uh, incredible expression of giving. Certainly there is a, a principle of that, that she still wanted to worship the Lord in giving, even though she had nothing. But there in Mark 12 and, and also in the parallel passages in the synoptics, it's a rebuke against the Pharisees who are devouring widows' households. They are taking advantage of those who are vulnerable and telling them if they want to be accepted by the Lord, they have to give all of this. Here, that's not the principle we have, but it should be proportional. If the Lord has blessed you richly, you are in a position to generously bless others. Two more, not in this passage, but I want to bring up 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4. He gives an example of the believers of Macedonia and there the principle is giving should be sacrificial. Giving should be sacrificial. You can just jot down 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4. to I don't have time to, to read that this evening. And lastly, giving should be cheerful. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Let each one of you do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's no better demonstration that money is not your God, but a tool in the hand of a, a faithful steward than to give your money unto the work of the Lord. To be generous with your money. This, this heart attitude that says, God has blessed me, so I want to bless others. This is a habit of financial maturity. And one that I would say we need to be regularly in the pattern of cultivating. This this. Uh, expression of generosity. I just think we are being like God when we are generous. 
He is our God who has abundantly and generously blessed us, as we read back in 1 Timothy 6, with all things to enjoy. He has given us so greatly, and we'd love to reflect His character as we generously give out of what He has given to us. Let's look at one more habit of financial maturity, and that is just this term, intentionality. The second habit I want to highlight of those who are financially mature is intentionality. As believers, we are to be intentional with every area of our lives. We talked about uh, our, our bodies and our minds. We are to be intentional with what, uh, what we take into our bodies, what we set before our eyes, what we dwell on, what we listen to, the practices that we engage in in our lives. Money is another area that requires great intentionality. We must think carefully about what God has given us and how to steward it well for His glory. And there are a, a lot of principles I would love to talk through about how to be intentional with our money. I, I want to just kind of give the overarching principle uh, that we must be intentional. We must manage our money in such a way that demonstrates we are trusting in God and not in our money. The idea here is, does my financial stewardship demonstrate a love for Christ, a love for His people, a generosity that demonstrates I'm not in love with my money or earthly possessions. Now, there are dangers on both sides of the road when it comes to finances. There is the danger we've already addressed in the love of money. And then as I talk about intentionality here, you can be intentional with money for wrong motives, for sinful motivation. So someone could be crippled with fear And therefore, they're very intentional with every money because they're afraid if they do not have this penny, if they do not make their money go as far as it possibly can, something's going to happen to them. What heart attitude is that expressing? They're trusting in their money. They're putting their hope in the uncertainty of riches. They may be very fiscally responsible, but it is an expression of fear, not an expression of faith. There's a great danger in, in the love of money, and there's also what I would call in an idolatry of frugality, where we think we have to make our money go as far as it could possibly go, stretch every penny until it screams, and then stretch it further. And there is this temptation. This something, uh, as I think about money and what's tempting to my own heart, is this, uh, th- this idea of frugality, that I have to uh, always get a better deal. I have to always save a little more money. I have to always do this. And any of you that have that same tendency, I just want to call you not to stop being intentional, but to examine the heart motive that's driving that. We want to be driven uh, by a heart of faithful stewardship before the Lord, a heart of contentment, a heart of generosity, and that is informing how we are intentional. We can get to um, those that know me well know I love the practice of budgeting. (laughs) And uh, that is something that I would encourage you to embrace a practice that is for you to be able to carry out that principle of intentionality. Now, I certainly like the practice of budgeting, but this is how I am applying that principle of being intentional. You're not in sin if you do not have a budget. Let me be clear about that. But I would encourage you that budgets can be a great benefit of being intentional with your money and being sure that you're being wise with each area. 
You can budget in for things such as we saw in 1 Timothy 6.18, enjoying the money that God has given you. But I would urge you to, as you're thinking about budgeting, first budget in generosity. First budget in the things that are expressions of your faith in God, that you're not putting your trust in earthly riches, but you're putting your trust in God who generously gives us all things to enjoy. Have uh, 10 pages of notes here on saving. Do not have time for those, but if you look at the Proverbs, it is the fool who squanders away everything he has. The, the fool lives hand to mouth. The, the fool gets a paycheck and immediately blows it. It is the wise that stores up treasures. Now, you're, as I say that, you're thinking, but there's also parables of Christ rebuking the man who stores up and builds bigger barns to store up more. Yes, it's a hard issue, right? There is wisdom in saving, and at the same time, the person who is saving to accumulate their own monument of their personal glory, that person is in rebellion to God. Another person wisely saves, puts away a percentage of their money, uh, acknowledging it can be useful in the future, it can uh, be a protection of difficult things happening, and that person is praised in the Proverbs. Proverbs 21.20, Proverbs 13.22, Proverbs 6.6-8 is the ant who is uh, praised for wisely putting things away in harvest time so that uh, they have food the rest of the time, and it's the fool who just eats everything as they get it. So, Really, the, this last principle that um, I'm having to skim over all of these notes for is just that we are to be intentional with what the Lord gives to us. This is how we apply those principles of stewardship, trusting that we are not the ultimate owners of what we have. I, uh, I told the teens there's only one person in the Scripture who is said to have taken their possessions with them whenever they died, and you don't want to be that person. That was Korah. In Korah's rebellion, the ground opens and swallows Korah. All of his family, all of their possessions, then they go down to Sheol, alive, with all their stuff. That's the only person I know of that took what they had with them. And uh, none of us want to follow Korah's example. We're not taking it with us. We want to be faithful stewards of what our gracious God has, has given us. And in that, we are expressing a heart of contentment satisfaction in God, not satisfaction in our money. We're expressing a heart of generosity and a habit of generosity and carrying out that habit of being intentional with what our God has given us. All right, we're out of time, but I've loved this series with you all and hope that it has been helpful for you. Just to round out our series, I would urge you to uh, continue to examine all of these areas of maturity that of spiritual maturity, physical maturity, intellectual, social, emotional, and financial. I I love these categories that Pastor Mark gave to me because they help us look at our lives in in a more holistic way, trying to examine each area of what we're doing and saying, there's some things that we all need to work on. I would uh, exhort you in the Lord to identify areas of weakness and to begin memorizing passages and working through principles to store up those truths in your heart so that you can address the hard issues that are causing those immaturities and those weaknesses. Let's go before the Lord in prayer together. Father, we are so thankful that you are a generous God. 
Indeed, we look around at all of the luxuries and conveniences we have, and we don't want to have a false sense of guilt that we have nice things. We want to have a profound sense of gratitude that you are a God who gives abundantly beyond what we could ever deserve, and you demonstrate that most of all in Christ, in giving eternal life to those who deserve eternal condemnation. For those of us that deserve all the wrath for our sin, you have in turn given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Thank you that you are a generous God. May we reflect the character of your generosity, acknowledging all things are yours, so we carry out faithful stewardship. Help us to embrace contentment, having no love of money in our hearts, no uh, idolatry of, of accumulating material possessions or, or, or this sense of frugality that we, uh, we, we have to make our money go as far as it possibly can for our own sake. But may we be wise. May we be careful with how we manage our resources, with developed habits of generosity and intentionality so that indeed in all things you would be magnified, that we would be those who use our earthly possessions as tools to in turn build your kingdom. We love to fund the work of gospel ministry. We love to see your word go forth and those uh, men of conviction, even as we have uh, spoken of the Twombleys and the Boldanes today. So, Father, thank you so much for entrusting so much to us. We put no trust in any of our earthly possessions, and we fix our hope on you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.